Views and opinions expressed by the hosts are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of their employers. This podcast may not be suitable for children. Adults may find details triggering and or offensive. Listener's discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. I'm Priscilla. And I'm Norma. And you're listening to... It's a mystery for me. I mean, today is the injustice for me, but I guess the name of the show is... (laughs) It's the mystery for me. It's true. So here we go. everybody for tuning in for yet another tuesday it's our third tuesday yeah we've been doing this i can't believe that i know i cherish this time and i know it sounds weird because it's like the topic is morbid but i get to spend time with you norma i think we spend more than enough time oh my gosh no we don't yes we do we don't we live in the same house i mean okay don't put my business out there like that 30 and living with my parents but I don't care I don't care I'm saving my money <laughs> just I'm kidding right I'm spending all of it on bags anyways um but I don't get to spend that much time with Norma so it's nice to be able to spend this time together. I guess that's true that is, is true. true you're always yeah. studying yeah so anyways today we're on to a new case it is an unsolved case so if you were looking for closure it ain't here Maybe next Tuesday. Maybe next Tuesday. So this case has been unsolved for, drum roll please. I didn't know you were really going to do the drum roll, Norma. Well, you looked at me like you wanted me to, okay? (laughs) I did give her a look. Okay, it's been unsolved since 1965. Wow. That's a long time. That's a very long time. We're talking civil rights era. I think mom was born in 1965. Maybe I shouldn't say that. She don't want no, to. No, Dad. That. Oh, wait. Dad, Dad was. was That's right. Mom is older than She's Dad. She's older. She's a cougar. She's a cougar. I mean, nothing has changed. Yeah. They're divorced, but nothing has changed. But anyways, we're talking about the civil rights era, and I think people really do forget, and, and or a lot of people feel like it was such a long time ago, like, yeah. everyone needs to get over get it. Over it. It's yeah. like, it wasn't. I was reading about Ruby Bridges when I was, like, in second grade. And at the time, I think Ruby Bridges would have been in, like, her 30s. Yeah. And I was so amazed by the story. Like, they try to present it, like, in class as, like, oh, my I gosh. I remember. Wait a second. Thing. I remember being there. So how is that possible? Maybe you came to class one day. Oh, maybe I was there. Yeah. Sometimes I would drag Norma to things because I was it's scared. True. I was a scared little kid. A lot of my pictures, even my school pictures, has Norma in <laughs> Norma's in a lot. She's in my pre-K picture, like, my solo picture. Yeah, that's weird, but it's true. I have like anxiety. I definitely had it as a kid. But anyways, Ruby Bridges was a topic of conversation and they made it sound like it was such an amazing thing that she integrated the schools and everything was better now. And it was like, I mean, it's kind of a far stretch from the truth. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's not blatant racism to my face. I can remember one time actually in Oklahoma where someone pulled up next to me and called me a, you know what, the N-word. 
I remember you telling me. With the E-R, y'all. Not the E-R. The E-R. It was the E-R for me. Wow. But, um, and I was by myself. I was in Oklahoma, by the way, because I was training for Teach for America. Even though I did it in Miami, they sent me to Oklahoma that summer. And, I mean, it was very, very shocking to experience that in person. And I remember you were by yourself. Were you bike riding? I was bike riding by myself. I don't know why I decided to ride a bike to Target. I remember, but this is a crazy part about that. I remember after leaving Target, I brought the bike on the bus. I didn't want to, yeah, I didn't want to ride home again by myself. Oh, okay, this happened on your way to Target. Yes, and it was like about three, there was three white guys in the car. And I was just like, oh no. And I brought the bike. I don't even know if the bike was allowed on the bus. I found a way. I think there was like a, a hook in the front yeah but it was still broad daylight but i was that afraid wow that i was like okay let me that's extremely sad i know that this is america people and that wasn't that long ago america that was a few years ago that was a few years ago was 2013 wow i was a baby yeah so this episode is very much a blast from the past but really like a lot of it will i think drum up a lot of like present emotions that people feel when it comes to racism in this country and systemic racism and just like blatant racism and all kinds of racism pretty much okay so this is how today's episode will go first i'll give you background information on alberta then i'll hop into a timeline of events leading up to her murder and discuss the murder itself and then finally i'll talk about theories and where the case stands today So buckle up, because here we go. Alberta was born Alberta Odell Jones on November 12th, 1930. So for the astrology lovers out there, sis was a Scorpio. And she was from Louisville, Kentucky. She died at the age of 34. I really should say she was murdered at 34, because that's what happened. She didn't have any kids. She lived with her mom and her sister. And her and her sister were five years and nine months apart, but they were super close. So you'll hear me talking a lot about her sister during this. Um, So I thought it was important to mention that, that they were just like inseparable. Mm. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about her accolades because honestly, Alberta was exuding like black excellence like that. Shit was seeping from her skin. You feel me? She was like, just honestly, the stuff that she was doing in 1965 was truly unheard of. Let's talk a little bit about her educational background. She went to Louisville Central High School, and then she ended up going to Louisville's Municipal College for Negroes. Yes, it was wow. called that. Again, a blast Let that sink in, people. Let that sink Negroes. in. For Negroes, you understand? Like, Negroes, me and Norma, we could not go to the schools that we went to, like, that we went to today, yeah. right? And that Norma's currently going to. We couldn't do that. Yeah. And look at that. I, I can't believe it. Just reading the name itself when I was doing this research, I was just like, oh my goodness. Wow. So the college, though, eventually ended up like merging with the University of Louisville, you know, with integration and stuff like that because of desegregation. Right. And she went on to basically get her degree from University of Louisville since they, you know, were now a combined school. Right. Um, of course, she graduated with honors. Are we surprised? Not surprised we at all. Ex- we expect nothing less from Sister Alberta. Nothing less. Yeah. Um, and she went on to go to law school. But before I tell you about her law school journey, why did her sister say that Alberta wanted to be a doctor? 
Oh, that's kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, is it? I wanted to be a doctor and then I No, that I mean, that's and then what I went to law school. Yeah. But her reason for not going was because she went into like some sort of rotation or volunteer thing program and she saw blood and she passed out. And after that, she realized like she wow. could not stand the sight of blood and she just could not do it. Back to her law school stuff. So she ends up going to the University of Louisville for law school. Apparently, she transfers to Howard. Oh, nice. Very nice. Okay. And she graduates. I mean, are we are we surprised about this too? With honors. Fourth in her class. Wow. Wow. Just like black girl magic, black mm-hmm. excellence. It's just given all of that. Okay. So... Of course, she went on to be one of the first black women to pass the bar in Kentucky. And instead of going anywhere else, because, you know, sis had options. I'm sure everybody was knocking on her door. So she graduated law school in 1958. She's back in 1959. She passed the bar. It's time to start her own practice. Now, Miss Alberta had all kinds of clients. She was just that type of person who wanted to literally help everybody. So when I read about her clients, I was like, wow, it wasn't like she necessarily specialized in one area. I mean, it was like civil lawsuits, but then she did other things. Like she represented people like coming up in like the athletic world. We'll talk a little bit about that. But one of her first clients, his name was James Bucky Welch. He was a seven-year-old little black boy. Can I show you a picture of him? Because you're yeah. literally going to be like, oh my gosh, he's so cute. Look at this. Aww. He's missing some teeth in the picture. Uh, not because I'm like... Wait, not, is he... It, no, reading, no, no, no. Okay. Norman's I was reading, reading the, the headline reading that the says, headline mur- and it says murder, murder, kidnap. No, um, no, no. That's okay. not him. It's not him. Okay. Unfortunately, someone else. Um wow. But no, that's just him. I don't know if you notice he has his little doggy. Oh, I oh didn't notice. Such a cute picture. Is it a Yorkie? It's not a Yorkie, Norma. Not okay. every dog's a Yorkie. We have All a Yorkie. Right. Not every dog's a Yorkie. <laughs> so his dog, he was like a little puppy. Um, and you know how much people adore their dogs. So I don't think this story is going to be surprising, though it is kind of like, eh. Um, it's going to be a little heavy. And by the way, with the missing teeth thing that we pointed out, it's he's missing teeth because he's like growing up and he's losing teeth like you're supposed to. Okay. So it's nothing like that. But anyways, so Bucky is playing with Smokey one day and Smokey being like a rebellious puppy decides to run onto the train tracks. Oh, okay. I don't like where this is heading. Okay. Wait, Norma, relax. Okay. You might be right though. So... Okay, Smokey gets loose. He runs onto the train tracks. What does Bucky do? Bucky runs after him. So Bucky's actually able to, like, get Smokey, but he's not quick enough, and the train starts moving. Should I fin- I don't know if you- Can you oh. handle this story? I don't know if I can handle it. I don't know where it's going. Okay, like, so I'm just- Is doing Smokey this. okay? Is Smokey Bucky okay? Is like, Smokey? what is going She's on? like, is Smokey okay? Is the dog okay? <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Basically, what happens is, Bucky ends up getting both his arms severed by the train. Smokey wow. lives. The dog lives. And and Bucky lives too. But he loses both his arms. Oh my gosh. How tragic is that? Seven years old. Wow. Right. So here comes Sister Alberta. Here she comes. And what does she do? She files a lawsuit against the train for $350,000. That's a lot. That's a lot. For that 1965, time. I mean, that has to be worth like... 
Should we look it up? Yeah, let's look it up. You Google it. It said that it's basically $3 million today. $3 million? Yeah. It says I was not. A, I'm sorry, y'all. I, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't I expecting thought, $3 million. I thought maybe like 800000 Oh my gosh. 700000 Okay, like, that's double. insane. I was not thinking $3 million. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, of course she files a lawsuit. She also does like one of these drives where you collect money, clothes, donations, etc. And she sets up a trust fund for Bucky. Just oh, for wow. him to be able to like live yeah. some sort of life without his arms. I mean, he's only seven years old at that point. He actually ends up living till he was probably like, I don't know, in his late 30s or 40. He dies in like 1993, unfortunately. Oh, wow. And the lawsuit ends up getting settled. We don't know how much it was settled for. But I mean, she was asking for $3 million. I mean, I think Bucky might have walked away with like at least a million, maybe a little less. But if you're thinking about like caring for someone who has no arms and stuff, right? that's going to cost more than a million dollars. And yeah. I don't know how health insurance is working back then. Mm-hmm. You know, now it's a pyramid scheme. I don't know what kind of <laughs> stuff be going on with that. For real, you'd be paying health insurance. Why am I paying for a co-payment? She also, all the donations actually did go to help him get prosthetic arms. too. So oh, wow. He, he did have somewhat of a normal life. And I did not, I wasn't able to find out if the reason for his death was connected to him, like not having his arms. Right. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of people who live without any arms. Like the story I sure. told you before about the girl who got her arm severed. That's exactly that's what, I was what you were thinking, thinking about, right? Yep. There's a girl in the 1970s, and basically she gets her arms chopped off by like this serial killer dude, and she lives. But the creepiest part about the story is like she doesn't have a cell phone in the 1970s, right? Neither does the people driving by. He did this in the desert, so now she's walking with no arms towards the road, <laughs> and I want to say she's waving people down, but she doesn't have arms. So she's literally like probably yelling. Can you imagine driving down a road and you see someone with no arms? I probably wouldn't stop. I don't know what I would do in the 1970s. Now at least I could call. Yeah, I was like, I probably wouldn't stop, but I would call 911. And then I'm like, wait. I feel like certain people would be like, this is some brujeria. This is some witchcraft. I don't know. Mm -hmm. A lot of some people. I wouldn't know what to think. Yeah. I mean, is it fake? You know, in my head, I'm like, is it fake? And you're trying to. You know, are you trying to me over? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You trying to get Get one over Mm -hmm. me? Yeah. Okay. Enough of her story. You guys Mm -hmm. can Google her. The story is from like California. I don't remember her name, but I'm sure it'll come up. Yeah. If you Google. But anyways, um, so she's still living. So I was like, okay, Bucky should have like been fine. But we Mm -hmm. don't know. Like, there's no information about like what happens afterwards. So let's talk about one of her other clients. She ends up representing someone named Cassius Clay. And he's up and coming in his, like, you know, realm of uh, athletics, let's say that. And he's young. He is gaining popularity and whatnot. And she's one of the only, I think she is the only black female attorney on his team of, like, white attorneys. Hmm. And um, some sources say she was the only one representing him on his first contract. But let's just cut to the chase. Do you know who Cassius Clay is? No. I don't. So Cassius Clay is Muhammad Ali. Wow. In one of his like first fighting contracts. And not only does she do that, listen, Sister Alberta was not playing about money. She also set up a trust fund for him too. 
he was super young at the time. So she set up a trust fund where he could not touch the money until he turned 35. Hmm. Wow. So she was super financially responsible. Yeah. So I feel like anyone who's like super financially responsible is loving this part of the story. Like, so she's just making sure. And um, actually, when she passes away, or really when she was murdered, because I feel like that has to be emphasized. She wasn't just like, it wasn't peaceful, right? Right. But she is said to have like at least $500,000 to her name because she had investment properties and all this kinds of stuff. Wait, $500,000 for that time? Yes. Well, okay. Let me let me rephrase because one site says that at her death, her estate was worth in today's money $500,000. But I saw something else that said that like her estate was worth $500,000 and that year's money so i don't know either way that's a lot of money yeah for she's 34 remember that how many 34 year olds have five hundred thousand dollars in their account and don't count like your 401k i mean maybe you can but i'm just saying yeah it's impressive either way very impressive there's like a study that shows that most people don't even have a thousand dollars in their savings account so five hundred thousand dollars and like just and your worth, I mean, there's no negative balance. No, right. it's actual positive net worth. That's that's very impressive. So she clearly was very a very good businesswoman, and she was about her money. She was about it. Okay, now that we know a little bit about her business mindset and the type of stuff she did, like, as a lawyer, just as a human being, she was amazing, too. She marched on Washington. She was very active in civil rights. She... This is this quote and this story I just loved because I just feel like she was very she was very much about uniting people. She would say things like, "Okay, black people and white people, they should just sit down and have a meal together and talk because you don't realize how much you have in common until you do that. Like you'd be surprised." And she had very very powerful white friends and very very powerful black friends and so like for her to say that, I mean, it just brings another perspective to the situation in terms of like at least the type of society she was living in back then the fact that she was so forward thinking back in Mm -hmm. 1960 something when there's still some segregation there's a lot of blatant racism and she's saying this and she's super positive and thinking like that i mean that is amazing um eventually her city ends up passing an ordinance ordinance that makes it illegal to discriminate based on race and like places of business um and they they've said in different articles that she was one of the reasons that that happened alberta had a lot of other things going on too she was a member of the zeta phi beta sorority she was part of the fall city bar association the louisville like bar association and she was a member of the naacp The other thing about Alberta that was truly amazing is she was really big on like getting black people to vote. And she actually wanted black people to register to vote as independent versus like Democrats or Republicans. And her idea behind that was somewhat like, if you're independent, like these, whoever the politicians are, they really have to work for your vote because you're not automatically voting Democrat and you're not automatically voting Republican. I mean, it's a smart idea. And she got to, she was able to register about like 6,000 people wow. under that initiative. Yeah, she was the executive director of the Independent Voters Association. 
She was doing big things. So she was pretty much, you know, doing a little bit of everything. She was doing a little bit of everything. She was a true black queen, okay? Mm -hmm. And she deserves... This is what I'm saying, like, Alberta, Tamara, all the people that we're going to talk about, they deserve justice. They do. You know what I mean? It's just really disheartening, like, talking about their stories and covering, like, all the, the amazing things they did and just, like, who they were as people. I just, you know... It's really heartbreaking. It is. Let me tell you a little bit more about her career because the resume ain't done, honey. The resume ain't done. (laughs) Period. We're still going. So in 1964, she became the first female city attorney of Louisville. And by March 1st of 1965, she was appointed as a prosecutor in the domestic relations part of the court. Wow. Wow. Mic drop. Mic drop. You know what that means, though. If she was in the domestic relations part, she was putting a lot of white men in jail for beating their wives. Yeah. Basically, she was making enemies. And just for, like, some sort of insight, her murder actually occurs just a few months after she, like, takes on this prosecutor position. Oh, really? Yeah. So she takes this position March 1st. She's murdered, like, August 5th. Same year, 1965. So, so someone really didn't want her there. Someone really. really didn't want her there. I mean, again, this case is so intense because it's during such a tumultuous time in history that it just adds even more layers to, like, you know, solving her murder. So anyway, she starts her job as Kentucky's first female prosecutor of any race. Okay? So she's the first black female, but she's the first female generally to be prosecutor the people who like appointed her to do it they were republicans and she was like an independent voter so i think she was kind of like this is weird that they want me you know i voted independent but whatever they still wanted her to do it so there you go she ended up being appointed i want to talk about this quote that she gives before her murder like in an interview shortly before her murder because i think it's important for people to like hear this and it honestly i read it and i was like i need to like tape this up in my room somewhere basically she said when she returned home from louis to louisville from college and from like law school back in like the 1950s 1959 Mm -hmm. she said people told her you got two strikes against you you are female and you're negro and she would respond yeah but i still have one strike left and i've seen people get home runs when all they've got left is one strike Wow, that's a pretty clever response. So clever. Black girl magic. She knew her job was going to be hard, okay, yeah. nonetheless, especially when it concerns domestic relations case. That's already, like, super difficult, getting everybody on board, especially the survivor of it and having them testify against, like, their abuser. It, it's intense. A lot yeah. of cases get dropped beforehand because the survivor will just be like, no, I don't want to do this. She knew her job was hard, but she was going to do it. Okay, so this brings us to the night of her murder. Uh, this was like... So there's there's two versions of the story for the night of her murder. So she's at home. This has been consistent. She's at home. She gets a phone call from a friend. Now, this is the part where it ends up differing. One version, and this is the version her sister says, is that the friend calls her and says, and it's 10 o'clock at night, and says, you know what, I'm... I'm facing a lawsuit. I need your advice. Can you come to me? And the thing about Alberta is that she didn't want her friends to see her as 
uppity as like, you know, as just like, I'm better than you type thing because right. I'm a lawyer. She was really afraid of her friend seeing her like that. So she decided to go out and meet this friend to help her. Hmm. Okay. The other version of the story is the same friend calls, but this friend is saying, I have your wig ready. Yes, honey, a wig. I, now, I love me some wigs. So this side of the story, I was like, dang, what kind of wigs did they have in 1965? Hook a sister up. I want to know. But anyways, the friend calls and says, I have your wig ready. Come and try it on. And she leaves the house at 10 p.m. So I don't know what version, like, again, her sister in, a mo- in like, a very recent interview in, like, 2016 says, like, it was the lawsuit one, but the wig one was kind of colorful. So I was like, oh, <laughs> cute. Okay, so let's talk about the eerie last words that was spoken between Alberta and her sister. And her sister's name, by the way, is Flora. And when I said that they were five years and nine months apart, Flora is actually the younger sister. So at the time of her murder, what Flora would have been around like 29 or 28 years old. Okay, so Flora says that this was their last moment. She found her on the couch reading a magazine and it was about Kennedy getting assassinated, right? Mm-hmm. And on a scale of one to like, you might want to sleep with your lights on tonight. This is eerie. This part is eerie. So basically, Alberta turns to her and says, I hope I don't get assassinated. This is the night That's of her murder. Creepy. Okay, that is I mean, very creepy. Talk about foreshadowing. And wow. Flora responds to her, you don't have to worry about that. You're not the president of the United States. Right. But how creepy is that? That's very creepy. So what happens after Alberta leaves the house? She goes and meets up with her friend, whether it's about the lawsuit or about getting her wig laid. I don't know. (laughs) But she meets up with her and they apparently go out to eat afterwards and they depart. You know, they say goodbye to each other at around 1 a.m. Now, at this point in time, a West End family who lived in the in the neighborhood, I guess this is like the neighborhood's name, West End. So a West End family reported hearing screams and seeing a woman being beaten up and dragged by somebody at around this time. Beaten up and dragged? Yes. That's what they reported. Okay. Now I know Sorry, what people I know what now. people might be thinking, like, why didn't they call the cops? Let's think about the the time period, right? So it's likely, like, the way people are describing these people, they're Mm -hmm. saying it's, like, a white person doing this, a white man doing this to a black woman. Okay, so let's think about that first. Mm -hmm. The other part of it, and sorry, our dog is barking in the background, probably at a ghost, I don't know. He has a mind of his own. But the other part of that is that I think when people see incidents like this happening, like incidents of domestic violence they do not step in to help because they feel like I need to mind my business. Mm -hmm. You know you can mind your business and still get the person help though, right? Right. Like it's completely possible to do that. You might feel like, okay, I'm going to put myself in danger if I walk up to them or whatever. But if you are really that anxious, you could just call 911, especially in this day and age. At that point in time, I don't know. If they were able to call the police and tell them, they could have called the police and... Like, they called the police after the fact. That means they could have called the police during the occurrence of this event. But they didn't. So what happens to Alberta? 
The report, the official autopsy report says that she suffered several blows to the head with a brick, most likely. Yes. Wow. Like, okay. beat till she was unconscious. And then, after she was unconscious, she was tossed from a bridge. What? Yes. So her official cause of death actually was not the head trauma. It was her drowning. Gosh, that's so sad. <sighs> very sad. This honestly. sounds very personal. It sounds personal. Doesn't it sound personal? Because I don't know. I thought you were you were going to say that she was shot to death or something. I don't know. Nope. Brick to the head. That's what they like speculate that it was. There was definitely head trauma. But yeah, right. she's when she was tossed off the bridge, she was unconscious. So Alberta was actually found the very next day. Her body had kind of like I don't know, like little boys had spotted her in the water, um, which was probably pretty traumatizing for them. Yeah. And they called for help. And when they found her, she was just missing shoes. She had all her clothes on. So that leads me to believe that there was no sexual assault of any kind. Right. And the reports don't seem to point to that. At least the reports that are out there right now, like in the sources that I've seen. Mm. So eventually, the family does call to just report the fact that Alberta did not come home the night before. I mean, this was very out of character. So they felt like, okay, we need to like get authorities involved. And when the police show up to tell the family that Alberta had died, had been murdered, Flora passes out. Flora and her mom are so traumatized by this news that Alberta's blackmail colleague actually is the one who identifies her body. That's where the case kind of starts to stall a bit, believe it or not. And you would think that, okay, it's one of your own, right? It's your pro- it's a prosecutor. Yeah. You know, you see how cops go hard for each other. And mm-hmm. like law enforcement in general, like a lot of the times people think of law enforcement as like including prosecutors sometimes, mm-hmm. right? And so at least that's how they're portrayed on like Law and Order, SVU. Great show. But I I'm I mean <sighs> Are you surprised that they aren't, like, going hard about, like, finding out more? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's backtrack for a second. How did she even get to the bridge? So that part is not entirely clear. I can tell you that they did find her rental car a few miles away from her body, actually. Um, And they found some evidence inside, including blood and fingerprints. But... I don't know, and it doesn't say anywhere, if she was driven in a different car... Or if they drove her in her rental car and then they just dumped a car once they were done. I mean, we've seen that happen plenty of times on true crime shows, right? Yeah. Typical. Since I mentioned a little bit about the evidence found inside of her rental car, I think it's probably a good segue into dissecting the murder theories out there. We know based on reports from eyewitnesses that she was grabbed up by a man. Now, I've seen in some sources that it's one white man and other sources that it's a group of white men, but... It's interesting because most of the sources leave the race out. So just something to keep in mind. Now, what was the reason behind her murder? I mean, is there ever a good reason for someone being murdered? No. No. But this is the theory that's out there. Her job was dangerous, right? She was a prosecutor. And she was prosecuting a lot of white men for beating up their wives. The other theory behind this is that maybe it was a hate crime. I mean, this was 1965. It was a very different world. Yeah. 
than the one we're living in today, though some would argue it's not that different. Right. But still, I digress. The interesting thing about this case, given the circumstances of it, right, the time period and even like maybe the lack of technological advances and like evidence and stuff like that, right? Or like how to go about, I don't know, using evidence for your benefit. There was so much evidence collected in this case, second to only one other case in Louisville at the time. Some of the things that they collected included blood samples, cigarette butts, her clothes, her shoes were actually eventually found, her dentures. Yeah. Oh, that's... That was different. I was not expecting that. I wasn't either, but then I thought about, like... I thought about how dental services are today in this country and how inaccessible it can be mm-hmm. and how if you let certain problems build up and you just don't have the knowledge about, like, dental health, it can really... I mean, it can end up being very costly, not only to, like, your actual health, but also to your pockets. Sure. So that could be the case. I mean, in 1965, maybe less dental insurance available in the same kind of situation, but just, like, 10 times worse. Police eventually discover another piece of evidence that I think is very important. And they discover it a few years later. Guess what it was? I have no clue. Her purse. On the, near the bridge, like hanging off of like a branch or something like that. So I'm just like, were y'all really searching? Or I mean, people have been known to return to the scene of the crime or just like go nearby and drop things off to try to like sure. throw off people. But yeah, I don't know. The most damning piece of evidence of all seems to be a fingerprint they collected from the rental car. Remember, I mentioned that they got blood samples and fingerprint. Yeah. Well. In 2008, the FBI found a match to the fingerprint. Yes, that's the T. What? It matched a guy who lived in California. He would have been 17 years old at the time of the crime. He took a lie detector test. He did not pass the lie detector test. So he was arrested, right? Um, of course, in these stories, you know the answer already. No, he wasn't. The prosecutor did not pursue the case because one source said that they couldn't prove the fingerprint came from inside the rental car. I mean, okay, if it came from outside the rental car, there are tons of explanations, right? Yeah. You walk by the car. I mean, I put my hands on your car all the time just for fun. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's, there's so many more explanations. And it's a rental car. And it's a rental car. But if it's inside the rental car, now you kind of have to do more explaining. You can't really explain it away, right? Like, it kind of places you there. Now, whether it places you, like, at the the murder, that might be, you know, that there needs to be more investigation done in that sense. Sure. However, they could argue that this was more than just a chance interaction, unlike me walking by a car and accidentally putting my hands on it, right? Like, did he rent the car? Show us proof. Like he would do, he would need to do a lot more work in this sense to get himself out of this one. I would think. Right. Yeah. So I think that's why the prosecution was like, yeah, we can't do it because we can't prove that it came from inside the car. Okay. So why else did the prosecution not go ahead and prosecute him? Well, the prosecutor, at least the Washington Post said this. The prosecutor said lots of evidence had been lost, and I'm using air quotes, and that many witnesses and investigators were dead who had been part of the case. Hmm. Hmm. 
Conveniently lost? Conveniently lost, question mark? I mean, you guys, you guys can figure <laughs> this one out, I think. Um, but this was also the excuse they have been given the family for years when her family would just press them to like do something about the case, right? You have so much evidence and nothing. One thing to note about this case is that the name of this dude in California, right, who was supposedly maybe the main attacker or part of like, or part of the attack, right? As one of the people, his name has never been released to the public. Never. And they say it's because he's never been charged. But we saw with Little D from the Tamara Green case, his yeah. name is all up and down the websites. That's true. And he's never been charged. He's never been charged. At least not with her murder. No, not with her murder. So it's interesting to see how different jurisdictions handle things. But yeah. I mean, could it be a race thing? Possibly, right? Yeah. In 2013... Professor Lee Remington became interested in the case. So Professor Lee Remington, she's an associate professor of political science at a university down south. And she's also like the head of their like pre-law program. She graduated with her JD. And it was actually during that time that she was in law school that she saw Alberta's picture in the hallway. And that immediately piqued her interest. So in 2013, She starts reaching out to like Alberta's sister and like friends and basically anyone involved in the case. And she got lucky because someone that was part of Alberta's circle actually had access to the case file. They had submitted like an open records request. And so they Hmm. were able to pass it along to her. And the Washington Post says that basically within 10 minutes, she found two discrepancies. Now, what were the discrepancies that she found? Well, it's interesting because I was looking for the two that they mentioned, but I really could only find one. And it's the fact that the prosecutor says that everyone involved in the case is dead, but that's actually not the case. One of the detectives of the case is actually still alive. Wow. Yeah. He must be very old, though. Yes. Actually... You know what? He he's kind of, you know, he's up there. But when he was actually a detective does on the case. Does he remember? Yeah, he really? does. He remembers. Wow. When he was a detective on the case, though, he was one of the youngest detectives. Okay. Yeah. He invited her over for lunch and everything. Professor Remington. Wow. Yeah. I don't know what was said at this lunch, though. That hasn't been, like, published or anything. But clearly, he's alive. Homeboy in California is alive. You know, prosecution and the police department can't use this excuse excuse anymore that these people are dead, important witnesses and detectives. Everyone is dead. It's like, no, they're not. It needs to be investigated further. It needs to be investigated for sure. And the detective she found, by the way, his name is Carl Corder. Um, And as of like right now, I'm pretty sure he's still alive. So they need to move fast, right? I'm sure Professor Lee Remington, knowing her, she's probably recorded a lot of her sessions with him or something like that, right? Probably Mm -hmm. put some pen to paper because this is important. This is important stuff. In 2016, Professor Lee Remington sends Louisville police a letter in which she asks them to reopen Alberta's case. Okay, so you might be wondering how a Lee Remington can help in this type of tragic situation. Well, I should probably mention that Lee Remington is a white female. She recognizes her white privilege and has used it to give voice to someone whose voice is overlooked and in this case, muted unfairly and tragically. 
white allyship looks different to different people. But let me tell you, this is the kind that warms my heart. Yep. I like for, honestly, if you're going to be a white ally, I'd like for you to be vocal. I told you the story. I told Norma a story recently about an experience I had with an employee, well, a fellow employee. Um, And we had gone to a work event and we parked in the same parking garage. And I told her about what happened in the parking garage that I was told to pop my trunk so that they could search my trunk. She told me that that hadn't happened with her and we parked in the same place. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I wanted to say something, but I was just like, I've just been in situations with fellow white friends where it's clear to me that they rather not say anything because they don't want problems, quote unquote. Yeah. Or they have anxiety or something like that. Not this girl. Let me tell you, when we got there, she was like, I feel like we should say something right now. Because I want them to know that I know that something is up, that we were treated differently, and we should just get to the bottom of this. And that's exactly what happened. It turned out it was kind of a misunderstanding. I don't know if that is the case. Right. But it's the fact that she spoke up for me. And you know what I'm saying? I don't even know her that long. I really don't. And we've become, you know, we've become, we're becoming closer and stuff like that. Work from home is like, you know, makes these kinds of situations a little bit tougher to get to know people. But this is something I always will remember. I even texted her the next day just saying thank you. And she's like, don't say thank you. Like, this is just in my nature. This is what I have to do. Yeah. And if you're listening out there and you are a person who has white privilege, this is what white allyship should look like. This is what I would want it to look like. Just a few years ago, Professor Remington and Flora, Alberta's sister, raised money for a banner with Alberta's picture on it, and it hangs over, like, a city bank. I think it's called the River City Bank in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, I know I told you guys earlier about an eerie moment between Alberta and her sister Flora, right? Yeah. The night that she was murdered. But this, I saw a picture online that was equally eerie. So this picture actually shows... Alberta's banner in the background so it's on the River City Bank and there's police officers in the picture and they are there to monitor a protest that's going on for Brianna Taylor so Brianna Taylor say her name by the way Brianna Taylor was murdered in Louisville Kentucky that's creepy someone on Twitter tweeted that it was like a depiction of the ancestors looking down Hmm. And seeing, like, wow, the murder is still happening yeah, to our people. Look at this. You know? So, it was very eerie, indeed. I need to take a look at this picture. Oh, yeah. Let me show you the picture. Yeah, I see it. Very, um, it's eerie. It's very ironic, too. Very ironic. Yeah, I think that's a better word. Yeah. Ironic. If you have any information regarding the Alberta Jones case, just know that the FBI actually reopened the case in 2017. But the Louisville, Kentucky Department, like police department, would want everyone to know that they never close a murder case if it has not been solved. So they've said they say that it's been open this whole time. Right. So anyways, the FBI has reopened the case. And if you have any information, you should contact the FBI. And that concludes our episode on Alberta Jones. Yeah, thanks for tuning in, guys. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and see you next Tuesday.